it's quite a distressing thing to think that you know those people would have come when my father had stayed in the house that they would probably have murdered as many of us as as they could have got away with my father sacrificed his life to save the rest of his family welcome to the currency.news podcast powered by investec it pays to be curious Welcome to the Currency Podcast. I'm Dion Fanning. Who killed Joe Campbell? That is the question asked in a series of articles by Phoebe Greenwood for the Currency.News, a four-part series about Joe Campbell's life and death and the search for justice. Shortly, we're going to talk to Joe Campbell's son, Joe, Joe Jr. But first, we wanted to talk to Phoebe Greenwood about this story and her investigation into it. Phoebe, it's really good to talk to you. Um, firstly, who was Joe Campbell? Um, hi. Uh, so who was hi. Joe Campbell? Hi. Um, Joe Campbell was uh, peculiar in a way in that he was a Catholic um, sergeant in the RUC in the 70s, um, of which there were few. Um, he was the sergeant in a small and particularly idyllic town in Antrim called Cushendorm. Um, where he had lived since the early 60s with his wife and his family. And in 77, um, he was shot and killed as he locked the gates to his police station. Let's ju- we'll come back to that uh, because clearly that is the, 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 the hinge on which this whole story uh, uh, hangs. But um, he was, as you say, he was a Catholic uh, officer in the RUC. He was also born in Monaghan and he came mm-hmm. from a family he's a very unusual story to say he came from a family of of police officers a guardie um but he also then left and joined the RAF yes i mean he seems to have come from a family of uh, generations two generations i think of police officers um and as i understand the family um, he just very much believed in service and um, the responsible use of, um, you know, it's a different idea of policing in a way. He was very much a community man. And that's how he's described by the people in Cushendall who all still remember him. You know, when people talk about Joe Campbell, they talk about it in the way that they might, you might talk about JFK or Elvis elsewhere. You know, where were you when he died? It's very much a de- defining um, question for the community, but yeah, he was a community man, um, and I, it feels like service for him was something that was very important, and actually, unusually perhaps for the time, very much not an issue in any way of sectarianism. Um, community was community; it didn't matter who you were, and you served it. Um, and you know, in a way, that's why it makes him and his story so powerful for me, anyway, because. You know, I started looking into it. Now, you know, there are 1,200 unsolved legacy cases in Northern Ireland that the PS and I are currently looking into or not looking into. We'll get into that. Um, but every single one of them is a tragedy. Uh, the reason for me that Joe Campbell is so powerful and so compelling is for all these kind of virtues that are unusual, but in a way they're also absolutely kind of timeless. They're classical. He's sort of an archetype in some way, you know, We've been telling Joe Campbell's story for centuries and centuries and centuries because he had a sort of hero's journey in the most classical sense. You know, he's not like a kind of James Bond or Will Smith or something. He's more of a sort of Aristotle's type of hero. You know, he was an extraordinarily capable man, a highly moral person, 
Um, and it was exactly these virtues that sort of led him into tragedy, really. Um, and as you say, he was almost uh, uh, maybe not quite an anachronism, but he was he represented a different style of policing um, yeah. as, as as the kind of as the troubles erupted in the north. Um, and, you know, you, you've written like we should talk like you the detail, awful lot of detail of this is in you've written 18,000 words for the for the <laughs> currency dot news on this. Uh, um, that's over four parts. And the first part talks about the events of February 25th, 1977, but also gives the background to Joe Campbell's story. And, you know, the, the opening lines are, are are arresting in themselves. And I think possibly highlight some of those distinctions about him that, you know, compared to an awful lot of officers who for very good reasons may have had a different approach, but it just says Sergeant Joe Campbell never wore his gun. Mm. You know, and he didn't drive either. Um, So if he needed to get anywhere, he um, had to be driven by his wife, Rosemary, um, or his, um, or his colleagues. And, you know, he, he made jam at the police station. You know, you talk to people in Cushendall and they say, you know, almost every single person you speak to about Joe says the same thing, that he was pragmatic. Um, there's this guy, Randall McDonald, um, who, McDonald, <coughs> sorry, who owned the local bar in Cushendall. Um, and he was, a, he was a friend of Joe's and I spent some time with him. And, you know, the thing that he said about me is that he was just quiet and sensible and he solves people's problems. Um, people felt he, he never locked his front door. So the kids, well, I say the kids, they're now in their their 40s, 50s and 60s, but um, they remember that the front door was never locked and they'd come down in the morning and there there were local farmers sleeping on the sofa because they'd even been too drunk to get home or they they didn't want to, they were afraid of the road, it was rainy, something like that. You know, he he was very much a staple of the community who people felt protected by, which is, and, you know, he had a stroke um, at the time that he was killed. He was recovering from it and it still left him partially paralysed. So he he wasn't a kind of, his strength didn't come from any sort of kind of physicality or certainly certainly not in his demeanour in that way, but he was just respected, uh, he was trusted and he was very much part of the community. He kept out the worst from every side, you quote, Paul McAllister in the first piece is saying that was mm. how he pleased as you as you've laid out there, um, and as, as you like as you've said there he he would also be pragmatic. People would be asked you know advised to leave. He kept he kept the troubles away from Cushendall as much as he could. But mm. as the seventies went on, and the seventies really was the darkest darkest period in 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 the troubles in many ways but as it as it went on it was harder and harder for him to do that um yes i think you know a man who was kind of like he kind of he managed to be um to smooth out conflict with pragmatism rather than confrontation but there seems to be one moment when the udr was going to be sent into cushendall and this was during the period of internment where he had seen what had happened all across the North, where internment had in turn led to radicalization or escalation of tensions. Um, and he had just had a stroke um, and he was recovering from it. And he had heard that the UDR was going to be sent to Cushendall and he got dressed in his uniform, which again was unusual for him. He rarely wore his uniform and he rarely wore his gun. Um, and he went to see the UDR and he, he said he was going to quit if they were sent in and, and 
and it worked. They they didn't they didn't enter because they said, listen, he said to them, listen, I know these people. These are this is my community. If there's anything wrong done, I will handle it, but it will be done in a civilized way and it will be done um, through the community and with the community. And in this way, he did manage both to keep the UDR out, but he, he managed the same thing with um, Republican elements that were certainly in the community. But he was saying, <laughs> you know, people say that he would say, like, listen, fellas, um, we I know I know what you're up to. And if you continue with this, I'm going to have to arrest you. I think it might be better for you to go elsewhere before you kind of ruin your life and end up in prison. Um, so in that way, he managed to keep it uniquely quiet, really, in, in Cushendall. But that all began to unravel when he saw crime being done in his community, against his community, a, a series of bank robberies, post office robberies um, that were, you know, must have been aggravating to a community man such as themselves. They were targeting people, um, the institutions where local people kept their savings, the local banks, local post offices that were being robbed regularly. Um, and then, then later he found out that there was actually a much bigger issue of weapons um, that were being smuggled into Red Bay, which is a tiny um, cove just on the edge of his community. Um, and that seems to have been the crucial issue that led to his death. And that sense of foreboding and, and the details of, of that Red Bay dump, again, mm. you go into in, in the piece, but that sense of foreboding mm. um, was present in, in, in his personality. And, you know, you talk to his family and we're going to talk to Joe Jr., as I said at the top. But mm. that was around in in the weeks, at least before before February 25th, 1977. That's right. He had been receiving death threats. And not only had he been receiving them, uh, phone calls been made to his house and they were received by Rosemary, his wife. Um, the other thing that, you know... <laughs> We talk, I keep talking about this notion of a hero, and I don't mean to idealise the man. Um, certainly his family would be outraged by the idea that I might. Um, <laughs> um, but he had that quality of absolute stoicism, so that's what people talk about a lot with him. So he, was, he knew that his life was in danger. There were death threats being issued to him officially uh, through his colleagues in the REC that were being passed on to him. His wife was receiving... He, 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 was, he was called the wee sergeant, um, by the community, which is odd because he was a tall man, but it was very slender. Um, so he's kind of affectionately teased as being called the wee sergeant. But the, the death threats rather menacing, menacingly were saying, you know, the wee sergeant needs to stop what he's doing. Otherwise, you know, there'll be a bullet put through his head. And he was receiving, he and his wife were receiving these calls. Um, but despite this, despite knowing his life's in danger, he he was still persisting in going through the official channels and reporting the wrongdoing that he he saw happening. And, and, and I think this is what, again, makes his story so powerful in that despite what must have been obvious to him as an unwinnable battle at the end, um, he still persisted in, uh, in, in, in standing up to, um, to wrongdoing. Um, so it's, it's pretty incredible in that regard, because he, he sort of did ultimately, with his family certainly see it as this, because on the night of his death, he received several phone calls that they believed to be final threats to his life. He wasn't even on duty. Uh, for the very first time, he put on his pistol, uh, which he struggled to do because he'd had a stroke and he was still paralysed on his left-hand side, so his daughter helped him. And he went to the police station where his son happened to be, Joe, who we're speaking to shortly. He, he cleared the police station and minutes later, he was shot in the head. Um, so it's this idea that he, this kind of idea of sacrificing, drawing the killers away from his family as well, you know, it, there's something so poignant and powerful, which is why 
there's such deep injustice that the institutions that he's gave, he gave his life in service to have done so little um, to support the family and in delivering justice to him. Well, he was failed uh, in life um, and, and he was failed in death as well, as, as you alluded to there. Like, you, you know, you, you, you talk to somebody for the piece who says that, you know, when threats were made against other police officers, thousands upon thousands mm. of pounds were spent on windows, fences and alarms. None of this was done for Joe Campbell. Mm. Um, and you talk then about what, how he's been let down. Can you, without going into the details of it, which as mm. I said, you, we can, you can be read about in the piece pieces, mm. um, mm. the, the investigations, uh, there's a there's a startling quote in, in from from Rosemary, his widow, in one of the, in one of the investigations when she's visited by, uh, is it, I can't it's a, a chief constable of the RUC I think mm-hmm. who says he's got a page of notes or a page of of mm-hmm. a, a notes on the investigation into Joe Campbell's murder, and yeah. she says if 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 a wee shop in Cushendall <laughs> is was robbed we'd have we'd have half a book on it. Well, um, that's it. Yeah, Dean, and the thing for me as well is that I noticed this myself when I was first aware of the story, it was about six years ago. And initially I was trying to write about it, uh, but I I couldn't get any interest in the story from any of the British editors um, that I was dealing with. Um, And the more that this kind of lack of interest in what to me was a very straightforward story of injustice and failures of the British, uh, the UK government or the UK security establishment or the justice system to do anything about it, you know, the more more outraged I became and also this kind of lack of sense of public awareness, particularly in the UK, of, of, or lack of interest is what it felt like, but I think it's lack of awareness. Um, of what what goes on in Northern Ireland, and which for me is almost epitomised by the story of Joe Campbell. So, yes, like the first police investigation again, um, it was what ran to one page long, and the police officers didn't even knock on a single door to get witness statements. Um, they they blamed the IRA, which it turns out for various reasons was very unlikely, uh, not least to do with the fact that the IRA rather claimed the killing adamantly denied it. Um, and even one of the local leaders of the IRA several years later actually approached Rosemary Campbell um, at a pub, I think it was, and told her that they absolutely had nothing to do with it. Um, she was terrified, of course, at the time. But, um, you know, and there was no bullet casings found at the scene as well. Um, and if the murder weapon was a rifle, as is being alleged, then, you know, there would have been casings there unless they were collected, which was certainly not the trait of the IRA. I mean, there's there's many little details, but, you know, um, and not only, but the, none of this was picked up by the police at the time. And indeed, if it wasn't for the Campbell family, um, the investigation would have dropped, would have ended there in 78 with absolutely no one, um, no one being charged. Um, it was only through the tireless, really, um, uh, efforts of the family that um, the, the search for justice is, is continued. There, there was a trial, but uh, on appeal, those those convicted were cleared. Is that right, Phoebe? Yeah, uh, and that was a colleague um, of Joe's in the RUC, um, a man called Charles McCormack, um, who had been an officer at Special Branch in Ballymena, uh, which is the local security headquarters, I mean, police headquarters, sorry. So, yeah, uh, Charlie McCormack was arrested in 1980, um, but he was cleared in 1981 um, because the prosecution's 
evidence rested on the testimony of a man called Anthony O'Doherty, um, who is described by one of the police officers I've spoken to as a likable criminal. Um, he was in the IRA himself. Um, his brother was a Republican leader, and he himself was an informer for Special Branch. Um, and he was he was he had to be quite a, a you know. He had been convicted of various robberies and post office robberies and all those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, the the trial collapsed because um, the evidence rested on his testimony. Um, and since then, as you say, in, prior to that as well, the family's persistence has, um, you know, kept it. Uh, they keep their 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 search for justice kind of is, is ongoing. Now mm-hmm. there is uh, uh, a, a new. Um, inquest new coroner's inquest uh, due for next year I think that's right isn't it and um mm. uh so so what happens is that there, there, there was a five-year plan of the um, attorney general to clear legacy inquest cases with the coroner and and um the campbell case has been slated for year three which is due to begin in april next year but of course if the amnesty um, that the UK government would like to introduce is in fact introduced, then it looks like um, all these cases who haven't, that unless there's been substantial progress um, in the coroner's inquest, then um, they will all be dropped. Okay, well, that's a good point too, because we want to talk about the amnesty and before we, we talk to Joe Jr., um, this is always a, a good point to bring in the voice of Prince Charles. Uh, we might listen to Prince Charles speaking in the... Uh, House of Commons in um, in May 2022 when he delivered the Queen's speech on behalf of his mother. Her Majesty's Government will prioritise support for the Belfast Good Friday Agreement and its institutions, including through legislation to address the legacy of the past. Phoebe, you touched on it there, but why is that important and why does that cause more anxiety for the Joe Campbell family? So... The idea is, I mean, it was mooted um, in July last year uh, that the Johnson administration wants to push through. It, it had its commander paper 498, which on addressing the legacy of Northern Ireland's past. And what that proposed uh, was a comprehensive and unconditional amnesty that would end all legacy related um, activity. So that would mean there'd be no civil or legal um, uh, procedures available left for people uh, for legacy killings um so this has been moderated slightly um uh in the documents in the kind of government briefing documents around the queen's speech but what what seems to be the case is that they're pushing through this year the the uk government hopes to push through this year the northern ireland troubles legacy and reconciliation bill um and that's that says that what it's trying to do is end a cycle of injustice. It says that it's moving away from a focus on criminal justice outcomes that are almost impossible by this point. We're talking about murders committed 40 years ago, of which um, 40, 45 years ago, where the witnesses are mostly, in, um, uh, you know, a lot of them are dead um, and a lot of them are old. Most of them would be, obviously. So, um the idea is that there would be other forms of justice, but effectively what they're saying is unless there has been substantial progress made, even in coroner's inquests, which is what we're seeing with the Campbell's case, it's going to be a coroner's inquest, then um, unless there's substantial progress made by April next year, then this it, all, of, all of these things would be dropped. Um, so 
there's this panicky window now where as much progress is trying to be made as possible um, in in inquests by April next year. And of course, there's there's I think there's more than 50 um, that will need to be progressed. So it's looking unlikely that most of them will actually be put before the coroner in the end. And it's been Amnesty International have opposed that uh, they described it as a disturbing interference in the justice system. Mm. Uh, it's clear the government has not shifted from its plan to sacrifice victims. Um, mm. I mean, look, it's we'll, not, we'll, only, yeah, we'll, not only Amnesty, sorry, Dion, but also like, you know, it, it, it would contravene Article 2 of the European Convention of Human Rights. It, even, it would even contravene the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, you know, it's been opposed by the European Commission. It's been opposed by the United Nations, you know. Um, but the British government, well, the Conservative Party is entirely behind it. So it looks like it would be, it looks like it will be passed. Okay, Phoebe, um, we're joined now by Joe Campbell Jr. Joe, thanks so much for for talking to us. Um, I know this has been, you know, your life's work and, you know, your family's tragedy. And we'll get into talk about how many different ways it's affected all of you in a second. But just to take up what Phoebe was talking about there in terms of uh, the amnesty, can you tell us what that means in terms of your family's search for justice? Well, um, well, it, what essentially what uh, the, the British government is, is trying to do is trying to close down all uh, legacy cases. So essentially, and what that means is they want to withdraw the you know fundamental democratic rights that everybody has in any society. You know the access to civil and criminal justice. So they want to stop any uh, any uh, civil actions, which and we have won that we issued against the uh, PSNI stroke RUC in two thousand and four, and. Uh, they will also want to withdraw, to close down uh, any inquests that haven't made significant pro- progress, whatever that means. So essentially, you know, our, our family and anybody else in, in, in Ireland and further afield who's trying to get some truth and justice uh, for, for, for loved ones who are lost during what is known as conflict, that, that's all been taken away. Uh, and how, how does that how does that impact us? Well, I mean, when I speak to my my mother and my my, my brother and sisters, you know, they, they they shake their head. There's almost an acceptance that you know this is this is this is what it was always going to come to because you know when you've had doors slammed in your face for you know essentially forty five years uh, by by you know by by the people who who are there to uphold truth and justice. You know, it's it's demoralising, but it's not. You know, it's not. It's not. It's not that we didn't expect it, because really, at this stage, we've come to expect nothing. Um, you've come to expect nothing. That is uh, the the extraordinary and painful thing. Reading, you know, reading this story, the uh, like, and I. I knew a little bit about it beforehand, but obviously Phoebe has done a huge amount of work on it for the currency. Um, and you've learned to expect nothing. And going back, can you talk to me a bit about uh, your father? What age were you, Joe, when, when he was when he was murdered? I, I was 19 years of age. And just to say, you know, the the 
you know, they're expecting nothing. I, you see, because I've been leading for this, leading this for the family for all these years, because it was safe, I felt it was safe for me to do so when I was, I've lived on the mainland since the year my father was murdered. I'm, I'm trying to manage people's expectations, which is very difficult because, you know, individuals have got, have got their own, you know, views, hopes, expectations about what truth and justice means. So I've been trying to manage that. So early, more, early, Oh goodness! Uh, early memories of my father. Um, well, well, I was nineteen, but you know, I, I was at that age where you know, just hitting the teens, you know, taking a couple of beers, probably for for a couple of years more than my father would probably have have, have wanted. But I guess that's just a natural thing in life. But one of one of one of the very very sad things for all of us is that I, I never got the opportunity to talk to a man and boy about the world. And you know, uh, it was more, it was more a, a father, you know, a, a father son from a big family. <clears throat> there was eight of us. He had to spread his time around, um, but never got that, you know, man to man chat really about, you know, how things were in the world. And and of course, that's that's one of the things that you know that that I suppose we all carry with us. You know, if only we'd ask a few questions earlier on, but you know. Uh, you know, we, we we might have been able to, to to understand you know what was going on and to do something, but the reality is that at 19 years of age, you know, if we'd found out really what was happening, you know, I'm not sure whether that would have ended well or not. But early memories, of course, you know, when we were my earliest memories of, of my father and, and and the work that he was involved in was when we were when my father was stationed in Cross McGlen, uh, and uh, I think it was. Maybe it was six, maybe nineteen sixty, sixty one, when there was it was it was the year of the very 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 heavy snowfall, and my father loading myself and my 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 two brothers, Tommy and Peter, into the back of the police Land Rover to take us to school, uh, in the Land Rover because uh, we essentially couldn't get there, uh, so that was the earliest memories, and you know. Uh, Memories in those times, we we lived in a in a little you know in a in a three bedroom council house just on the outskirts of Cross McGlen, you know, uh, semi detached. You know, there was about ten houses in the row. Remember my father, you know, when he came in from work, he be he carried the three of us on his back up the stairs <laughs> to to bed. Um, the thing know, that was, I've heard as well about him, Joe, is that. You know, people talk about him being a quiet man and, you know, pragmatic, but also very funny. Um, and your whole family's funny, I have to say. So I hope you don't mind me saying, but in my experience of them. <laughs> I mean, is that, but, you know, Rosemary said he was a terrible dancer, but, you know, he'd keep you laughing all night. Is that something you remember of him? Oh, absolutely. You know, he he, he, he had a very sharp wit. And you're right, you know, he, he was... One of the surprising things about him is, you know, and, and there's lots been written and said about him, but he was very unassuming. You know, if when he walked into a room, he he didn't like he didn't command attention or focus straight away, but but you know when he spoke, people listened. You know, which was you know which was one of his one of the fantastic qualities that he had. He was able to connect with people. You know, from all walks of life, uh, and and across you know across the divide, you know very easily. Uh, he was comfortable um, with people. Joe, on the night that um, your dad was killed, um, 
when we when we've spoken about it previously, you described that you you believe he was aware that the people who killed him were coming to kill him, and um, that he your father drew drew his killers to the police station. Um, can you explain that a little bit more? Why you think that? Uh, absolutely, Phoebe. We we know. We know that there were two phone calls to the house on, on that evening. And at that particular time, I was in the police station, which is only about, you know, uh, 100 and probably 150, 200 yards from our house. I was making a statement about uh, an attack that happened on our house the week before, where myself and my brother Peter got involved in an altercation at the local dance hall. And uh, some lads uh, followed us up to the house and they, they, they put the windows in. Uh, I have to say, it was a, you know, that was my fault. <laughs> I'm not going to deny that. Uh, the week before, I, I started it. But not, I didn't start too many, but you know, I, I, you know, I was involved in a few little scrapes like that. But anyway, because there'd been criminal damage, um, I, I was there making a statement. My father couldn't take the statement, obviously, uh, from me. Um, and he was off duty that night that he was in the house. And you know, there, were, there was at least one, possibly two phone calls to the house that night. And uh, after, just before I'd finished making my statement, uh, I'd heard the door open or close. Uh, and it was it was my dad. Um, he'd he'd, <coughs> he'd, uh, he'd put his uh, personal protection weapon on. He, he never put it on. He didn't have to. It wasn't him. Didn't need to use it. Uh, um, I'm not sure whether he would have been able to use it or not, you know, given what we know about him. But um, he obviously felt that there was uh, significant danger that night. And we believe that the the people who were, who were coming to murder him had told him that they were coming. And I guess... Uh, <clears throat> You know, I've thought about this uh, uh, so many times. I guess he, he, he felt that I was in danger if, if they, you know, if some of them were already there on the scene or they were making their way there. Uh, my, you know, <clears throat> my, my cross is that uh, if, you know, if I hadn't been in the station, would he have come to the station that night? I don't know. I feel now that he probably would have. Because, um, as as we know from incidents like Miami Showband, the Reavy families, the O'Dowd families, when these people come, you know they they you know they, you know there isn't anything they wouldn't do when when they get there. You know, murdered the three Reavy brothers, the O'Dowd brothers, you know the Miami Showband uh, band members. So 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 I I felt that he probably. You know, he he kicked in his you know his his instinct to protect his family and his community because it wouldn't you know it's quite a distressing thing to think that you know those people would have come when my father had stayed in the house that they would probably have murdered as many of us as as they could have got away with and, and they've got away with it you know not just in their own case. Ravy family, the O'Dowds, Miami Showband, etc., etc. My father sacrificed his life to save the rest of his family. Joe, like the 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 the, 
the the police the justice system haven't found out who these people were officially um but 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 you're talking now and we've talked um you know it feels clear to you that you know who these people were who killed your father and uh, who 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 you believe could have killed you your family too um you know why is it that you feel you know who it is but the but the justice system hasn't hasn't reached the same conclusion yes well I mean, Phoebe, if you consider that the you know there, there were two police inquiries the the first one contained three or four seats no well murder investigations the first investigation contained about three or four sheets of paper you know and and, and that's fact because you know when my mother went to see sir kenneth newman who was chief constable at the time before he went on to become commissioner of the metropolitan police he asked for the file when the file came out, my mother remarked to him that there would be more paperwork for for a sheep being rescued from from you know from the mountain down in the glens. And he also confirmed to her at that point that you know two police officers had already been questioned for the murder. So you had that you had that investigation. You then had a second investigation, which was flawed. There were no convictions, you know. Significant evidence uh, wasn't presented in court. Files, statements, evidence was uh, was destroyed. Then you had a thirteen-year police ombudsman's investigation that wasn't able to tell us who or why my father was was you know who murdered my father and why he was murdered. Um. So, so in terms of managing expectations and the initial question, you know, I, I told Michael Maguire before, you know, a couple of years before he, he produced the report that I expected nothing of him. He was quite shocked at that, but I wish I could have met him after he delivered the report in, in private where he didn't give the family access to, to, to his presentation of, of, of his report and I would have told him exactly the same when I, I told you so and the reason you know the reason that my father became embroiled in all of this was that he had discovered that loyalists were smuggling guns just you know through in the in the pier the next village uh, to, to us and he had reported that up the line and a decision was taken at a very high level to murder my father so Joe can you talk to us about the consequences of that for your family? You mentioned, you know, there's there's eight eight children. Your, your mother uh, still is still in Cushendall. Can you talk about the consequences of the, the 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 murder of your father, and then the 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 inept is probably the most benign way of putting it investigation, and the sort of realization about what really you were uncovering as, as the years passed? Yes, well, well see, see, one of the biggest issues is that when people look at families like ourselves, you know, and it took, it took me an awful long time to accept that I was a victim. I always thought I was a survivor. But, but, but you know, we're, I'm both, my family are both, our community is both. And, we, you know, when... When you accept that, um, you you know you then you then look at your life and you you understand the impact this has had. 
because I guess when you're a teenager, 19 years of age, you're immortal. There isn't anything that you couldn't do. But fundament, fundamental to us is that we, we, we were always brought up to know the difference between right and wrong. And I had probably, you know, four or five years trying to convince my mother, essentially, you know, about what really had happened here. And, and it was a struggle for her to reconcile that because, you know, my father, you know, being an Irish citizen, being born, being born in the free state, you know, coming across the border to join the RUC, which was almost, I'm not sure of anybody else. Maybe there were other people out there who did that. But he took a massive gamble, given the community they came from, um, to try and make a difference. And to understand that, that he was then murdered because of, you know, because of that. Um, it took a long time for my mother to reconcile that. But I think when she did, well, you know, you know let, let me draw an analogy. You know, you've got the Platinum Jubilee today and there are lots of accolades to, you know, to, 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 to the Queen today. And, you know, and, and fair play to everybody, you know, and I, I give respect to, to everybody. Who want to who want to recognise that, but I would also want to recognise my mother. My mother is the strongest person that I know. To have to endure what she did, you know, forty-one years of age, her husband murdered. She was thrown aside by the authorities. She had eight children to try and bring up, with no support. The only support that she got was from her from her from her family, from her siblings, and from and from the community that we come from. You know, and we're so appreciative of that. But how did it impact? You know, I, 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 as, you get, as you get older, you get a sense of your own, you know, more sense of your own mortality, but you look at the things that impacted on your life and you realize how, how much better and how different life could have been. You know, you know, I think I think all of us, in some degree or other, my brothers and sisters, carried that survivor's guilt. You know, what if we had spoken to him? What if we had been there when you know when Jackson and his gang arrived? You know, and and you know, the. The reality is that there was little that we would have could have done or would have done uh, to try and help or to try and mitigate what happened, but that's not how the human body works. That's you know that you know that realization doesn't control emotions, doesn't control aspirations. You know, o over the years. Because Joe, you've probably given the most part of your well. Uh, since your father's murder when you were 19, you've dedicated tremendous energy to uncovering what happened to him and why, and then pursuing justice. Um, now, when you're 45 years on, I mean, how does that feel to you? And I mean, because within the family, there's all sorts of different ideas of justice. So, so why do you think it is that, that, that you've been leading the effort to achieve justice through through the official system, you know, through the ombudsman, through the, you know, the coroner's inquest, through the civil action. Why is it, do you think, that, that you've been so motivated uh, and led the family in, in that effort? I, 
you know, I, I don't think I had any great calling to, to do something like that, Phoebe. Um, but but it's, it's who I am. I, I I despise injustice, you know, and every and everything that I've ever done, you know. I, you know, in my personal life, in my sporting life, you know, I played a lot of I played a lot of you know GAA. I hate to see bullies, which which in this scenario the state is and all of its agencies. Um, and I don't, I, I don't. There's something within me that said <clears throat> that in order to recognise who my father was and the sacrifice that he gave for his family and his community, that we had to get the truth. And you know, it's ruined my life. I know that now. But when you're working at things and you're trying to hold down a job and a family and you know all all the you know all the stresses and challenges that life brings, you you don't see the years go by. But when things don't happen that happen to other people, you know, and, and we things in life that you should get satisfaction from, and you don't, you you then have to stop and address that and understand why that was. And, you know, it's been very, very difficult. And I can't speak for, as for my brothers and sisters. I, I know, I know uh, how it has affected their lives. And while, while you can give support to, you know, to people, um, to my brothers and sisters and my mother, I'm not a psychologist. I can't analyze it to a degree, say that's why this happened, that's why you feel like that. But I do feel that you know, if the family had been treated properly by the state, they should have been there to support families. And there are many, many families like ourselves. And, you know, when, when people say to you, you know, with regard to this amnesty proposal and, you know, to dispense with all the legacy issues, you know, come and tell my mother that. Come and tell her just to, you know, to put all that behind her and to forget about it all, to forget about my father, to forget about the part that he, that, that he, that he played, you know, trying to make a better society in, in Northern Ireland. It just doesn't work. And, and one of, and I think, I think, you know, I, I've got two children, you know, I've got lots of nieces and nephews, cousins, aunts, uncles. And when people ask you, what, you know, what happened? Why did that happen? And then, crucially, how could that happen? I, I struggle to give answers that can match people's expectations of a democracy, a society, a just society. I can't give them answers to that. Just in the process of, of for me, of meeting you, Joe, and to meeting everyone in Cushendall and meeting your family and trying to understand what kind of man your father was, um, the thought kept on coming up for me, particularly looking at, you know, the struggle that you've been going through for 45 years, all the efforts, you know, going to actually meet Robin Jackson, who you think was your father's killer, you know, and then thinking about who your dad was and, and the kind of man he was. And, and I keep on thinking, you know, how would he have handled it or how do you think he would have handled it? This was a man who, you know, was brought up... At, um, 
with his father his grandfather police officers he himself was committed um a committed police officer you know how how do you think your dad would have handled the situation if it was a colleague rather than him that was shot that night well well phoebe yeah he'd 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 probably have done exactly what i've done you know like i say if you go back to 19 you know me at 19 years of age my brother's Tommy was 20, Peter was 18. Philip, the youngest, was, what, three and a half? You know, you can understand how people in other situations would not have taken the path that we took. And it's very simple for people to stand back and say, oh, why did that person do that? Why did he commit that act? Why did he commit that act of retribution? You know, why, why did he see vengeance uh, as the route to resolve things? And I think what I realized very early on, and probably what my father would have done, Phoebe would, you know, you know if, if, we, if we had taken a different route, you know, if I'd gone out to cause harm to the people who, 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 who perpetrated this act against us and our community, you know, my my attempts to get the truth and justice, you know, would have just fallen by the wayside. We would have been discredited immediately. But the reality is that, you know, are we any better off at this point? You know, in terms of truth and justice? Well, we are, because there's lots of information that we've learned over the years. Has the state fulfilled its part of the bargain in a democracy. No, the opposite. And the truth is that the state does not want the cases like the murder of my father, Joe Campbell, to be made public. They don't want the details out there because they will be exposed as perpetrating the murder of their own citizens and not just their own citizens. You're right. You know, my grandfather was a guard for 30 years. You know, he served his community in, in the free state. My father served his community for the years that he, that he was alive on the planet. But he would have done exactly what I have done, Phoebe. And he would have supported if it happened to a colleague. He would have stood up and been counted. And it is just an awful shame, a travesty for all of those people who were in the RUC at the time and some who are still alive and who were involved in the investigations and who've got information that few of them came forward to support the democracy, my family, my father, and the very institutions that they purport to to uphold. Joe, we'll wrap it up there. I want to thank you for uh, your time today and for um, all your your uh, contributions and collaborations with with Phoebe and talking to your, your family's cooperation on on this piece and wishing you well and hoping that there is some resolution. Um, but uh, it's a it's it's such a it's such a tragic story and it is a story as you say of of uh, bullies and um 
uh, just it's just a, it's, it's a tragedy in so many ways. And um, thank you again for your time. And Phoebe, um, thanks for, for joining us today as well and for your work on, on these pieces. Thanks, Dion. No bother. My pleasure. And thanks to Phoebe for being so uh, empathetic, you know, and dealing with my family because there, there have been many, many opportunities to, to collaborate and talk to people about it, but, you know, I'm, I'm just really, really uh, happy about how Phoebe's interacted with my family and being so empathetic and sensitive. Thanks, Phoebe. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. You've been listening to the Currency.News podcast, powered by Investec. It pays to be curious.